Dear family and friends of First Lutheran Church, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our risen Lord Pastor and John Savior, Christofferson will deliver Jesus this morning's sermon. Amen. From the gospel text for this second Sunday of Easter comes the famous caricature of one of Jesus' beloved disciples, Thomas. Yeah, I know. We've labeled him. Somewhere in some sermon, someone laid down that label, Doubting Thomas. And the name stuck. And yes, it's true. Thomas did doubt. It's just that there's a whole lot more here than meets the eye. We've all heard the expression, oh, don't be such a, a doubting Thomas. Unfortunately, this expression has come to be understood within Christian orthodoxy and piety as a reprimand, as having a negative connotation, as though doubt is somehow diametrically opposed to faith. Now, this might be true of skepticism, the school of thought that denies that we can know anything with certainty, or atheism, where the human will denies the existence of God or truth altogether, but not so with doubt. For doubt is actually a part of faith. Even John Calvin, professor extraordinaire of Christian piety, observes in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, doubt is in all people and always mixed with faith. Now, a classic New Testament example of this is the young father who beseeches Jesus to heal his child in Mark chapter 9, who says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. This morning I'd like for us first to give careful pause and ponder what we mean when we talk about doubt and how it relates to our Christian faith. Second, to gain a deeper understanding of the good news that comes to us on spirited wing in hearing today's gospel text, that is, how our risen Savior enters anew right here, right now, coming into the tightly closed places of our fear-filled and doubting hearts, speaking a word of peace be with you. Poor Thomas. For some 2,000 years of church history, he's taken the bad rap of being dubbed the doubter. As if the other disciples never entertained any doubts. I mean, let's look again at our gospel text. What does it say? There in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that is, three days after Jesus had been crucified, the other disciples were gathered behind closed and locked doors for fear of the Jews as well as the Roman soldiers. That is, for fear of persecution, fear of the unknown, a fear that grows out of what, do you suppose? Doubt. And where was Thomas? Our text doesn't really tell us anything more than this, that he wasn't with the other disciples. 
However, we're given a strong clue from the overall context of how St. John portrays Thomas's persona throughout St. John's Gospel. That Thomas was likely out trying to find some answers. If you look in chapter 11 of John's Gospel, we learn of Jesus wanting to return to Bethany in Judea because he's just received word that his dear friend Lazarus has died. And so how do you suppose the disciples respond to this? They panic and they say, you've got to be kidding. The last time we were there, they tried to stone you and us as well. But then, while all the other disciples are pulling back, Thomas is stepping forward and says, and note carefully here the intent in chapter 11, verse 16. Thomas says, let us also go with Jesus, and if we must, die with him. Doubting Thomas? Rather, what this passage makes clear is this. Thomas's doubt was not a denial, but a searching that's a very part of faith. Thomas the twin. A combination of, as St. Paul would say, the old Adam and the new. This brings us to the crucial matter of distinguishing between doubt that's unhealthy and one that is healthy and its relationship to faith. In her recent study on the intellectual history of doubt, including science and the arts, such as a doubt that drove the creative genius of Einstein's equations or Van Gogh's painting or Emily Dickinson's poetry, Jennifer, Jennifer Hecht points out how both in and outside the church matters of doubt have been mistakenly labeled as only negative, she says, or absolutely opposed to matters of faith. Even in our former green hymnal, in our Lutheran tradition, we had the following prayer for Pentecost 13 that reads, Almighty God, grant us the perfect faith that overcomes all doubt. What inference or conclusion are we to draw from this? What Professor Hecht carefully points out is that faith by definition includes an element of doubt. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. You see, occasions of doubt can actually invite us to grow stronger in faith and understanding. As St. Anselm said of old, faith must always be seeking deeper understanding. One of my all-time faves, Fred Beekner, formerly at Yale Divinity School, offers a, a rather whimsical yet profound insight when he writes, whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or you're asleep. For doubts are the ants in the pants of faith and creativity. They keep faith awake and moving. So writes Beekner. The reason we consider doubt in such negative terms 
I think has a great variety of reasons. This past week in our Wednesday morning Bible study, people offered some of the following as possible reasons. One person said, perhaps doubt is a sign of spiritual or intellectual weakness. Or perhaps one could argue that doubt implies a loss of faith. Or doubt is an insult to God. As if the faith God plants in our hearts at baptism is not sufficient or strong enough. Or again, doubt often grows out of some tragedy in our lives that another person, such that we're afraid to really wrestle with God like the psalmist and honestly confessed. God, don't you care? Am I just hanging out here in this storm alone? Or finally, perhaps it's because doubt is so painful because it points out the brutal fact that we're not in control. So if an unhealthy doubt is where we become closed in on ourselves in the darkness of bitterness or cynicism that creates despair, then a healthy doubt is where we are positioned by God's Holy Spirit to speak His Word anew, creating hope. It's healthy because it asks questions and seeks constructive answers, studying Scripture, staying close to God in prayer, being at regular worship with Christ's ongoing body in the world that is His church. And perhaps that's where Thomas had his falling, that he wasn't at church that first Sunday, that Easter Sunday, with the other disciples. He missed out. But fortunately, God's grace continues to flow and comes and seeks him out. Doubt can be healthy because even in the midst of its essence of not knowing, it's still directed outward beyond ourselves toward God with open hands. Think of the lament psalm, psalms that, that humbly come before God. Think of Martin Luther with his incredible bouts with doubt, giving us a renewed sense of the gospel. My friends, take comfort in knowing you're in excellent company when doubt seems to capsize your little craft. Abraham and Sarah, Job and Mary Magdalene, Martin Luther King Jr. and Mother Teresa, all examples of great forebears in the faith who've wrestled with doubt, yet placed it finally in the hands of him who creates faith even out of the nothingness of doubt. Even Jesus himself on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But finally, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. You see doubt and faith hanging together. Now, one of Thomas's serious errors was that he based his faith on feelings. Perhaps we could say this with kind of a hyperbole. It'd be like a young college freshman who argues, my girlfriend dumped me, therefore God does not exist. Well... An extreme example of how faith is built on feelings. But actually, we might dub Thomas as the great saint of logical positivism, 
The school of thought where truth is only verified by the empirical, the tangible, what can be touched or tasted. Recall Thomas's words, unless I see in Jesus' hands the print of the nails or place my hand in his side, I will not believe. There's a bit of Thomas in all of us here. And let's not make light or condemn such seasons of doubt in life. The reason for this New Testament story of Thomas today, as well as throughout the Old Testament book, for example, of Psalms, is to offer comfort and reassurance that we're not alone in times of trial. God's still with us, irrespective of our feelings or all appearances to the contrary in the world. Think on this with me. Do we doubt the presence of the sun because of thick clouds or the darkness of night? God is there because we have God's word on it, God's promise that creates hope. Even though I travel through the valley of the shadow, we read in Psalm 23, I fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me, O Lord. And so the gospel himself, the word of God in Christ, has the power to roll away all the heavy stones of sin and death that entomb, entomb us, coming now to Thomas. The doubt had grown darker and darker, and then it was Easter. Jesus stepped through the bolted doors of Thomas's doubt, extending his pierced hands once more, meeting Thomas's conditions not halfway, rather Jesus meets them all the way through. Thomas, put your finger here, says Jesus, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. And was Thomas ever surprised by joy, falling flat on his face, confessing the supreme title for Jesus in all of Scripture, my Lord and my God. The gravity of God's grace finally getting through to Thomas. Doubting Thomas, faith-filled Thomas. To conclude, I'd like to have you look with me at this marvelous study of, of Caravaggio's famous painting entitled the Incredulity of St. Thomas, painted by former Augustana professor of art, Eob Mergia. First, I'd like for you to note where the light is coming from. Caravaggio, like his, his student Rembrandt, was a master of, of light, what is called chiaroscuro, the use of light and darkness. And so the light of the world is coming in to the lives of the disciples behind the closed doors when all seems so dark. Note that the light is emanating. It is coming from Jesus. Secondly, note how it is that Thomas is really passive here. The work of grace, the gift of grace that comes in this painting is portrayed by Jesus taking the hand here of Thomas and placing it in his wounded side. And then if you look closely, you'll look at Thomas's face, his eyes. Where is he looking but into the future? 
And we know that Thomas is one who later on is the first missionary to India. It's as though God is casting this vision before him. And so this day we give God thanks for the apostolic witness of the early disciples of Mary Magdalene and Peter and John and Thomas who continue now through the centuries by the spirited word of Christ to go make disciples of all nations. My friends, we join with Jesus and the disciples this day in proclaiming the Easter message. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Thanks be to God.